Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to week two of Advent. I know if you're younger, the Sundays are going by so slowly, it's only week two. But don't worry, we just have two more Sundays to go, and then it will be Christmas. Um, but I'm, I'm getting the nudge to pray again. I know we just prayed, but it's always a good idea to pray. And I'd like to pray for us before we jump in this morning. God, there is nothing that I can say, no clever words to try to force your presence or for you to work in our lives. Only you can do it. God, help us to lean on you more and more. And I pray, Lord, help me get out of the way. Help us see Jesus this morning. Speak to us, Lord. Work in our hearts, God. God, for those of us that are hurting right now, that have a difficult time during this time of year, would you bring comfort and help? Would you meet us where we are? Would you bring healing to our minds, our bodies, our emotions, our past? Would you bring freedom for where we are enslaved? Help us see you more clearly this morning. Help us, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Okay. So, week two of Advent. This year we're doing something a little bit, a little bit different. We're talking about Christophanies. Now, Christophanies is not a unique... I'm sounding strange, aren't I? How are we doing? Am I okay? I'm good? All right. So, Christophanies are not a unique biblical concept. Appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament That's what a Christophany is. But it is a bit unique to do it for Christmas. So why are we doing it for Advent this year? We're doing it to show, to show us that Christ has been active, Christ has been involved, Christ has been working, Christ has been with us, not just starting on Christmas Day, but from all eternity. God the Son is eternal. And these Christophanies where Christ appeared momentarily at pivotal points in the life of his people in the form of a person is reminding us that Christ is the main character of the story of the Bible. Again, not just starting in Matthew chapter 1, but from beginning to the end. He, he is, as it says in Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega. He's always been an active, involved in this world. He's always been with his people. God manifesting himself in the Old Testament throughout the story was preparing the people of God to know that God wants to reveal himself. And God manifesting in the form of a person, in a, as a man in the Old Testament, was preparing the people of God to receive him, to know him, that he wants to reveal himself even as a person, to prepare us to receive him, God as man, in Jesus. And that's what happened at the Incarnation, when God the Son took on human nature permanently. But we're not at Christmas yet. We're not at the Christmas Eve service yet. We have three Christophanies, three appearances of God in the Old Testament in the form of a person to go. That's what this artwork is for. We see the three examples that we're going to work through. The first one today is the picture on the top left when Christ appeared to Abraham and to Sarah in Genesis chapter 18. And we're talking about God's heart for intercession, and we'll talk about that today. And then next week, that middle picture is when, all of a sudden, when Jacob, another patriarch, wasn't expecting it, Christ shows up and has a wrestling match with him at a pivotal point in Jacob's life to reveal to Jacob 
who he was. We're going to talk about our identity-giving God. And then finally, the third one on the top right is in Daniel chapter 3, that fourth man in the fire that showed up to intervene for the three Hebrews that were thrown in. We're talking about our intervening God in Daniel chapter 3, leading up to Christmas Eve this year. So I want to give you the main idea for our passage today in Genesis Genesis chapter 18. Uh, I'm going to have the slides behind me with verses, but if you'd like a Bible to follow along, if you don't own a Bible, for whatever reason you don't have one with you, you can lift your hand up and someone will gladly bring you one. We always like to to remind you that you're welcome to keep that Bible uh, if you'd like to or give it away. But we're going to be going through Genesis chapter 18 and this first example of a Christophany where Christ appeared in the Old Testament, where God came in the form of a person. Before we jump into the passage today, I want to give you the main idea, which is this. Christ received God's judgment that we may receive God's mercy. Christ received God's judgment that we may receive God's mercy. So the first thing we're going to do is talk about the occasion for this Christophany. Why did he show up when he did to Abraham and to Sarah? And then secondly, we're going to talk about the the conversation that he has with Abraham. And we see this complication of the judgment of God, but also the mercy of God. How can the just judge of all the earth be fair and just and yet show mercy? And then we'll get to the conclusion of how that comes together. So first we're going to look at the background of Genesis 18. Uh, You can read along with me. I'm going to go through verses 1 through 2, do a quick recap of verses 3 through 9, and then pick up again in verses 9 through 19. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. As I'm reading, you're going to get a little flowing commentary where I'm going to keep pausing us and just talk a little bit about the context around this first Christophany, where Christ shows up to Abraham and to Sarah. We're going to see as we read through this that three men appear to Abraham. Two of them we find out in the next chapter, Genesis 19, which we're not going to go through the whole story, but we find out two of those men were angelic beings in the form of people, and the third one was God. It was Yahweh in the form of a person. So pick up with me, Genesis 18, verse 1. It says, and the Lord, I'm going to stop right away, (laughs) and the Lord. Sometimes you'll see the word Lord. And the word Lord sometimes refers to master or sir or owner. But this word Lord is Yahweh. It's God's name. The Lord, Yahweh, appeared to him, talking about Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Verse 1. I'm going to pause again. In the heat of the day, God shows up to Abraham. I've been reminded recently that sometimes... We may think, I may think, God's only going to show up. He's only going to speak to me. He's only going to do something major in my life. Maybe when I'm doing, when I get up early to pray. Or maybe late at night, if he wakes me up in the middle of the night and I pray. Or maybe in the middle of a, of a church service when I'm around it, surrounded by the people of God. It says here, God shows up to Abraham in the middle, in the heat of the day. And I've been, again, reminded recently, God can show up at times when we expect him to and sometimes when we don't expect him to. And I wish I could share like three stories right now, um, but I'm not going to do that. Remember a couple weeks ago in our Thanksgiving service when we talked about God sightings and some of you came up and shared some just precious moments of what God has been doing and active in your life. Shows up at times you might not expect, like in the middle of Walmart when you're shopping for toys. He shows up in the heat of the day. 
Verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. I'm going to pause a second and and give you um, a quick 10-second explanation of the next seven verses. Abraham gets very excited. He runs to these three guests. He prepares a meal. He gets Sarah, his wife, involved. We have these guests. We have to prepare a meal, get the best for them. They show tremendous hospitality to these three visitors in the middle of the day. Pick up again at verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Pause a second. She was past the age of being able to naturally have children. She was 89 years old when God appeared to her right now. 24 years after the promise was made to Abraham, who is now 99 years old, that they would have a descendant, that they would start this promised nation who would bless all other nations. Continue on in verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have pleasure? She laughed about it to herself. Now, to be fair, the previous chapter, Genesis 17, Abraham laughed about the promise. They had waited 24 years. And when the promise was initially given to them, it seemed a bit impossible at their age to have children. And now after 24 years of waiting for both of them, what at first was a promise and a hope and life-giving to them, at, to- at some points at least, maybe some weak- weaker moments, it became something that was laughable to them. How could God actually do this at this point in our life? At this point, they were both seeing it as more of a dream than a reality, but not God. Verse 13, the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord, Yahweh, said, Will I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him? For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. All right, so here's the, here's the context of this first Christophany. Christ, why did Christ come at this point to speak with Abraham and to Sarah? We see in the text here two reasons. The first one was to confirm the covenant, to confirm the promise that God had made with Abraham and Sarah 24 years earlier. They would have this promised child. It is going to happen. And catch this, God came as a person to confirm the promises that he had been making to them. We could spend a whole message just on that first reason that he showed up. But we're not going to do that. We're going to talk about the second reason that Christ was there. And here it is. He wanted to bring Abraham into the conversation, into the decision about what was about to happen to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah 
and the surrounding cities, which we're about to read about. He wants to bring him into the conversation. And that leads us to our second point of this complication of judgment versus mercy in verses 20 through 33. How can God be the just judge of all the earth? How can he be the fair judge that should hear the outcries of sin of the world and do something about it? To be fair, to punish sin like it deserves, and yet to show mercy. His natural heart and bent to show mercy, to forgive. How can both of those realities coexist at once? So we see in verses 20 through 22 the call for judgment. But then we see in verses 23 to 33 the call for mercy. And then we'll talk about how those two conflicting realities can come together. The call for judgment is in verses 20 through 22. Here's what it says. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Pause a second again. We know from Scripture that God is all-knowing. He knows everything. He knew where Sarah was before he asked in the tent. He knew exactly what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah and the sins and what those sins deserved before he went down in person to check it out. And yet, he acts this way in order to bring Abraham, in order to bring us into the conversation, in order to better know God's heart, to better know what justice is and what mercy is. Verse 22, So the men, these two angelic beings in the form of people, turned from there and went towards Sodom, But Abraham still stood before the Lord, before Yahweh. So, here's the call for judgment. I want to point out that in the language here, in saying that the outcry is great, their sin is very grave, this would remind us back in Genesis 6 about the condition of humanity before the flood. Because it says in Genesis 6 that great was the evil of humanity, and that the thoughts and intentions of the heart Hearts of people were only evil continually during that time. And some of the language is similar there that would remind us of the condition of humanity during the time right before the flood. And on top of that, in the New Testament, there are multiple places that compares Sodom and Gomorrah and the people in it with the flood and the condition of humanity right before the flood. And there's some interesting parallels between Lot, Abraham's cousin, and Noah, the righteous people that God delivered through these judgments. So, there's a comparison. The outcry was great in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. An outcry is pleading, crying out in the midst of injustice because of agony, because of suffering, and crying out potentially for vengeance or for justice. It would remind us of Genesis 4, when Abel was killed by his older brother. And his blood, it says in Genesis 4, cried out to the Lord cried out for justice. So, what was the outcry in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities? Why was their sin very great? What was happening? In the next chapter, chapter 19, we learn more about why there was an outcry in the city. When we get a picture of just one night, what was taking place in Sodom. When you go through the next chapter, Genesis 19, those two angels come into the city of Sodom, Lot, Abraham's cousin, welcomes them into his home, shows great hospitality to them, takes care of them. But that very night, that first night they were there, 
a mob of lustful men try to break down Lot's, Lot's front door in order to force sexual relations with those two men. It's one night. Here's the kind of city they're in. And Lot, the one who's supposed to be the one who knows God, the righteous one there, what does he do? He offers his two daughters rather than having the men take his guests. A wicked, wicked city. We can imagine the kind of outcries that were happening in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. We learn more about the reasons for the outcry, not here in Genesis, but actually in Jude verse 7 and then in Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 49. Jude verse 7 says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, he says likewise because he's comparing it to the days of Noah, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And then in Ezekiel chapter 16, the prophet gives the re is talking to Judah, the people of God, and compares them with Sodom at that point in their history and says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. He points out specifically that it was, it was neglecting the poor and the needy. Let me pause for a second here. I've heard it said, maybe you've heard it said, that the only reason that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed was because of homosexual practice. Now listen, we, want, we, have, we have to, as a church, to walk in truth and to walk in grace. But spoiler alert, there's only one person who has walked perfectly in truth and in grace. Never compromised truth and yet was graceful, was understanding, sympathetic, patient, humble as he interacted with people. We fall sometimes in both of those categories. So let's talk about truth for a second. Was homosexual practice one of the reasons that Sodom was destroyed? Yes. Scripture is clear from beginning to end that the practice of that is sin. And we live in a culture that's going to continue to push on us to celebrate something that God calls wicked. We're called to celebrate in the truth, to rejoice in the truth, not in wrongdoing. And God is the one who decides what is right and what is wrong. But it's not the full story with Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't the only reason that they were judged. As we just read, violence, pride, and unwillingness to help the poor and the needy. So can we talk about grace for a second? How often do we look at the one or two sins of other people and neglect or not think about the probably 50 that I could be working on in my own life right now? And we try to point at one or two sins of other people that probably we may not identify with or struggle with and we, we villainize. These cities were about to be wiped out. They were about to be wiped out because these two Canaanite cities and their surrounding cities at this time, as in the days of Noah, were morally bankrupt. But Abraham, afraid that the righteous in these cities would be wiped out along with the wicked, appeals to the justice of God. He cries out for mercy. He intercedes. So are we ready for what intercession is, this very important biblical term? Here's a quote from Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, about the book of Matthew. He has some excellent chapters about intercession and then what an advocate is. 
He says this is the definition of intercession. When a third party comes between two others and makes a case to one on behalf of the other. I'm going to say that again. Here's what intercession is. When one party comes between two others and makes a case for one on behalf of the other. So it's standing in the gap between two people or between a group of people and another. Standing in the gap. Pleading for one on behalf of the other. A couple examples. You may go to your school and your school, your kid's school, and talk to their teacher on behalf of your kid. You can intercede for your kid if there's a problem going on in school. Maybe you have two friends that have been fighting for a while, and you decide you're going to step in and talk to one of your friends on behalf of your other friend. That's what intercession looks like, and that's what we see Abraham do here. He intercedes, he pleads with God on behalf of these wicked cities. So let's look first, uh, let's look next at the call for mercy in verses 23 through 33. Read along with me. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? I'm going to read that again. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Verse 26. And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord, Yahweh, went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham stands in the gap. He intercedes. He pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities on their behalf to God. He says, if there were as few as 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10 righteous people in these cities, will you destroy it? Why is Abraham doing this? Why is he concerned for these cities? One reason can certainly be because his cousin Lot, that we mentioned a little earlier, lives in Sodom. He cares about his cousin. In Genesis 14, a few chapters earlier, his cousin was taken captive along with a bunch of people from Sodom and a bunch of their goods, and he gets together a team of people, these soldiers, and he goes and he rescues his cousin, and he rescues people from Sodom and returns many of their goods, all of their goods, to them. 
He cares for his cousin. He probably cares for some of the people in the city that he had just rescued. And he doesn't want to see it destroyed. And so he pleads with God on their behalf. Now I want to take a second, just pause. As we're talking about intercession and someone standing in the gap between one person and another. Abraham standing in the gap between God and these cities. When we talk about prayer, when we talk about intercession... I have two questions for you. The first one is, who is currently interceding for you? Do you have people in your life that are consistently going before God and asking him for mercy in your life? Asking him for grace in your life? Asking him to work in your life? Do you have people that are doing that? Because if you don't, can I highly encourage you? If you have thoughts, proud thoughts that I don't need that, I don't, reject those thoughts. (laughs) It's one of the way God works to accomplish his will is by having believers pray for one another, by having believers pray for those who are not yet in the faith as well. Ask a believing family member. Ask a believing friend. Ask your tribe. Ask people to pray for you. If you've never had someone pray for you before, if you simply want prayer, we try to remind it every service now, see somebody afterwards to pray for you. Anyone you see up here, you can ask, can you pray for me? It could be about anything. And we would love to pray for you. Chances are, almost everyone in this room, if you ask them, will you pray for me, they would do it. And if you don't, it's totally fine. If someone asks you and you're not comfortable praying for them, they can bring you to somebody that would. Just just point and you'll probably find someone who would love to pray for that person. Who is interceding for you? And then second question, who are you interceding for? Who are you praying for? I believe one of the greatest privileges that we have as believers is to plead mercy on behalf of someone else to God. To intercede, to stand in the gap, to pray for other people. I think it's one of the greatest privileges that we have. And can I tell you something that's true and sobering? The only opportunity we have to do that is in our short life. After the lights go out, after you close your eyes for the last time and you don't wake up on this earth, you will have no more opportunity to stand in the gap for somebody else. You will have no more opportunity to pray for somebody else. Now is the time to pray. And the Lord knows the people he's put on my heart to pray for. Who are the people in your life he's pressed into you to intercede for? Let's pray for them. Who are we interceding for? Okay, so I know some of us are thinking, we're talking about intercession, people pleading with God on behalf of other people. Abraham's doing it for these cities. We can do it for one another and for people that we know and that we care about, that we, people we haven't met yet. Does this mean that God needs his arm to be twisted to show mercy? Does this mean that God doesn't want to show mercy, that he needs to be somehow coerced, coerced? into doing it. No. Take a step back for a second and look at the overarching story that we're going through and then look closely at it and see how, as it says in 2 Corinthians 1, he's the father of all mercies. He's the God of all compassion. It's his natural bent to want to show mercy. It's why he showed up to have this conversation with Sarah and with Abraham at this point in order to show his heart for wanting to be merciful. Look at the exceptional condescension of God that he would come to this earth in the form 
of a person at all. And on top of that, listen to another man speak to him. He listens to Abraham. Just think about that. He comes in the form of a person. He listens to Abraham. And then he'll go and he'll rescue a family from Sodom that didn't deserve to be rescued in the first place. Notice how in every response to Abraham, what did, what did this pre-incarnate Christ say? What if there's 50? Yes. What if there's 45? Yes. 40, 30, 20, 10. Yes, 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 yes. There's no hesitation. There's just the desire to show mercy. And the question we should be asking ourselves as the number keeps going lower and lower is, how deep, how far does his mercy go? What will he be willing to do in order to bring mercy? Now, for Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, the reality was there were not ten righteous people in those cities. In fact, when you read through Genesis 19, you find out that even those that were warned about the destruction that was coming, Lot and his family, the ones that are supposed to be righteous, they don't want to leave. They're undeserving to leave. And yet God rescues them as well, as they literally have to be dragged out of the city by those angels. Some of you might be thinking right now, wait a second, isn't Lot called righteous in the New Testament? Yes, surprisingly he is. It says in 2 Peter 2 that righteous Lot was distressed by the sensual conduct that he saw and heard while he was in the city. There were signs that Lot did know God. The sin that he saw and heard around him while living in Sodom did pierce his conscience. He was bothered by it. We see some other signs that he belongs to the people of God in the way that he, that he shows hospitality to the two men, the angels that come into the city and tries to protect them. But at the same time, Sodom had seeped deep into his veins and his family's veins as well as he offers his two daughters. And as, as his end of his story ends, similar to Noah, it ends with drunkenness that leads to family disgrace. The people of God can make some awful, deep mistakes. Sin runs deep. And yet, by the sheer mercy of God, his grace and forgiveness goes deeper still. He was part of the family of God. He received mercy. But we haven't resolved the tension, we haven't resolved the question. How can the judge of all the earth, who should rightly deal with sin, we don't want a judge who overlooks offenses, we want a judge who's going to deal with it, who's going to do something about it. How can the judge of all the earth, as it says in verse 25, deal with sin and yet not penalize sinners like us? Those who, as Romans 3 says, all of us have fallen short of his glory. All of us deserve that condemnation and judgment. So what's the answer? What's the conclusion? What does he do? How deep, how far is he willing to go to show mercy? The answer is Christmas. The answer is a baby. Abraham didn't know that he was talking to the very person who would come on Christmas Day. That he would go so far as to come himself, not temporarily, but permanently take on human nature. And then to stand in the gap 
between sinners like us and the righteous judge of all the earth. He interceded for us, and he continues to intercede for us. In John chapter 17, if you want to find the chapter that shows Christ's prayers for his people of intercession, that's where it is, John 17. He prayed that we would have his joy for the disciples at the time, and he says for all who come after them, that we would have his joy, that we would be kept in him, protected from the evil one, unified, sanctified, that the world would know that Jesus came from God and that God loves us as he loves Jesus. And then the last thing he says, probably my favorite one, he prays that we would be with him and see his glory. These are the prayers, these are the intercessions that Christ made for us. And fortunately, he didn't stop praying. It says in Romans 8.34 that he's still interceding for us in heaven. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. When we go through the book of Hebrews, we're going to see more and more about what that is about. But he continues to pray for us. He doesn't leave us. He walks us all the way home. Only he, only Jesus, has the heart and the ability to intercede for us the way that he does. He alone is the truly righteous person. Able to spare not just a few people from a few cities, but he came to save people from every tribe, language, and tongue, from all nations. He came on Christmas Day knowing that meant he would stand in the gap. And in order to do that, he would be high and lifted up, taking on God's righteous judgment for all sins, including ours. The blood of Abel cried out for justice. But Christ's blood speaks a better word. Mercy. Forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Christ received God's judgment that we may receive God's mercy. And so we're going to remember that and celebrate that as we take communion today and anticipate his arrival, his birth on Christmas. Let's pray. God, you have shown us in your word, Lord, last week we talked about the many examples of how you showed up, how you manifested yourself several times before you came permanently on Christmas Day, taking on human nature. You're a God who wants to reveal himself. You're a God who would go so far as to come fully human fully God. Lord, would you help us to see your desire to come near to us, to show mercy to us, and Lord, would you help us to see that we in no way have earned or deserved that mercy, that kindness, that willingness that you have to come near, to come close, to forgive us. Not one of us deserves it. Not one of us would even know how to ask for it unless you worked in our hearts. We need you, Lord. 
We need your forgiveness. We need your mercy. We want a fair judge, but God, that leaves us condemned. And so Christ, you came. You took that fair judgment. You are the just judge of all the earth. That cares for us so much that you would take on that judgment. That you would forgive us. That you would pray for us and continue to pray for us. Stand in the gap and bring us home. Father, help us see your Son more clearly. Thank you, Lord Jesus, how you've always been with us. God's people said,